Once considered one of the most promising young stars in the Democratic Party, he nearly took down Republican incumbent U.S. Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri and was the favorite to become mayor of Kansas City. But then life happened. In late 2018, Jason Kander found himself immersed in one of the most challenging issues impacting the Iraq and Afghanistan combat generation, post-traumatic stress disorder. And today, he's the president of a nonprofit organization serving homeless and at-risk veterans with tiny homes, wraparound support services, and emergency assistance. Now out with a new book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, we welcome Jason Kander to the podcast as our special guest. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a lot to talk about and a special guest as well. I think we'll narrow it down to two topics. One, we cannot obviously let uh, this week's show go without mentioning the horrific uh, attack on July 4th. Very close to where I live in uh, Highland Park, uh, Illinois, a place where uh, I spent uh, many a night and day uh, growing up, a suburb of Chicago, for those not familiar, heavily, heavily Jewish uh, population in Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, again, sort of sits on the shores of Lake Michigan, about 25 miles north of Chicago. Uh, beautiful community, historic community, uh, and uh, just ripped apart, uh, shattered in a way that nobody would have expected on the happiest day of the year for me, uh, July 4th. Yeah, you know, these are the toughest type of attacks to prevent in some respects because it's an attack on everyday life on everyday America. But in other respects, you know, there are really uh, tough questions we got to be asking about who is this person? How are they radicalized? And how did existing red flag laws not catch this guy before he he perpetrated this act of violence? Yeah, listen, there's going to be immediate debate over gun legislation and gun laws, uh, what Congress could do, what the state of Illinois should be doing. The state of Illinois, as many people know, have some of the strictest gun laws in the nation. They'll be reviewing what, what is in effect, what's not being enforced, what, what still could be in effect, and there will be plenty of political debate over that. There are existing red flag laws in the state of Illinois. Th- those are some that you've heard about in the congressional debate so far. And I think there will be a lot of questions, especially uh, on that issue, as far as what were the warning signs? How long uh, did, did this person show up on police radar? Um, you can I don't want to give this person any credit uh, undue, uh, any more fame that, he, that he's pursued. So you can you can read about it if you have. Um, it's, it's available online, but you'll see that there were a lot of signs here uh, and potentially tip offs to the police uh, in advance. So I think there will be a lot of questions uh, going forward uh, of what needs to be done, not just in the state of Illinois, but but around the country. Yeah, yeah. And the other issue, uh, also important, and one we talk about a lot, it's back, Jared. The Iran deal talks are back. They went back to Doha, Qatar, of all places, just last week. Uh, Surprise, we left Vienna we left our luggage, you know, somewhere else, and so we've moved on to Doha, Qatar, to have talks indirectly with the Iranians now. Same deal as before, still on the table. No real progress reported from these talks. They seem like a waste of time, though now supposedly there's a new offer from the Iranians on the table. They'll do the deal. They understand we won't remove the IRGC from the terrorist list anymore, but if we just lift terrorism sanctions on one of the most massive commercial enterprises owned and operated by the IRGC, a big construction engineering firm, uh, then they'll go forward with the deal potentially. So uh, a lot for uh, us to contemplate here of where this policy is going. The president setting out uh, on his Middle East trip, which will include Israel and Saudi Arabia, very soon. And already suggestions that these talks in Doha will pick back up upon the president's return. So a very clouded picture to me of where the where the administration is heading. Are they tired of these talks and ready to turn the page to something akin to a maximum pressure campaign? Or is this an endless uh, policy of just waiting for Godot while the Iranian nuclear program advances? 
I mean, I, I think it's the former. I think that, uh, you know, when when the Biden administration turns to some some kind of uh, maximum pressure campaign, to use your word, I think they want to be able to say to the world, to their constituents, uh, to Europe, that they exhausted every possible option uh, and there was just no deal to be had. And then, you know, then they will be able to uh, have a much greater coalition going into this maximum pressure and really, you know, m- move the Iranian regime that way. Time ticking away. We will see if that's correct. But Jared, let's get to our special guest. Jason Kander is an American attorney, author, veteran, and politician. A Democrat, he served as the 39th Secretary of State of Missouri from 2013 to 2017. He has previously served as a member of the House of Representatives in Missouri from 2009 to 2013. And he was the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in 2016. Today, he's the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project and the host of the Majority 54 podcast. Jason Kander, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me just start by saying it's an honor to have you with us today. Uh, We first met when you were running against Senator Roy Blunt in a race you almost won that featured one of the best political ads I've ever seen in my life. And we'll come back to that in a second. But your new book, Invisible Storm, which comes out this week, begins with you in the middle of a run for mayor of Kansas City, checking yourself into a VA hospital and being placed on suicide watch. What was that day like and how did you get there? Ah, uh, well, great question. That's <laughs> the second part of that is really what the book's about, right? Like, how did I get there? And then also about what did I do after that? But um, what was that day like? That day was many things. Uh, one thing was, at, at that point, I already knew that the, that the following day, I was going to make an announcement that I was stepping out of public life for a while to go get treatment at the VA. Uh, and so that day felt frankly to me at the time just like utter defeat like it just i just i'd been building something for a decade and i knew what the rest of the world didn't know you know i knew that the next day i was going to hit the self-destruct button on a pretty promising political career that i had built and and i was known nationally you know at that point i i had just a few months earlier had decided not to run for president and to run for mayor instead, which surprised a lot of people. And so it was the opposite of how I felt on the other days when I was about to announce something in my career where I I felt excited and, you know, like, oh, I have this secret. This was like, I have this secret and everybody's about to find out that I've been completely defeated by PTSD. And, uh, and I just remember feeling like a failure uh, and, and scared because I didn't know what my future held not just from a career perspective, but I didn't know what it held from a personal perspective. I had no idea if I could get better. I knew that I was trading in the only thing in my life that was going well, my career, for the chance at getting better, having no idea if I could. Obviously, the book, even in chapter one, just as Jared and I talked before the show, I mean, just the vivid detail, right? And and the way you talk about what you've dealt with is incredible, and I encourage people to read it. But maybe for for the vast audience out there that knows just a little bit about PTSD, you know, share with us things that people don't know that you've learned uh, during your journey. Yeah, there's several. Um, I think the most important thing for the broader audience, because I didn't, you know, I wrote the book from the perspective of a combat veteran who got PTSD from that but but the book is really for everybody who's had any kind of trauma or loved anybody who has which is why you know the portion where i go into the military where i go to afghanistan is the first two chapters and then after that you know you're with me as i'm just trying to go through this in my in my life and then the entire third act is just me confronting it head on in therapy right and so i guess one of the most important lesson to share with everybody is that trauma is trauma i i spent uh, 10 years uh, trying to rank my trauma out of existence, trying to, I thought I was trying to gain perspective by thinking, oh, well, you know, I've got friends who, you know, had to uh, take take lives or friends who, who saw their friends killed right next to them. And, and I thought that what that was doing for me was helping me see that what, what I had gone through wasn't that bad. But all it was really doing was delaying my opportunity to, to get better and to get treatment by trying to tell myself that I didn't need it, that this couldn't be real. And I say that because, you know, I've been public about this for almost four years now. And as a result, uh, 
I've had a lot of people come up to me and say things like, well, you know, uh, you making your announcement helped me go get therapy. But like, look, I wasn't in a war or anything. And and the thing is, is my brain has no idea what your brain experienced. And, and the likewise is true as well. So my brain doesn't care. Like, so if you had a bad car accident or if you survived cancer or you lost a loved one or maybe you just went through a really bad divorce or had trauma in your childhood, like it doesn't matter. And it's a waste of time to compare it to me going to Afghanistan because if it affected you, it affected you. And you don't need an explanation as to why and you don't need to justify it. You just need to go get better so that you can enjoy your life. And Jason, you know, that's really an interesting point because uh, I think that there's sort of like this, this subgroup of people who have experienced PTSD, but, but like you, and as you talk about in the book, talk about not earning it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, for, for me, that was one of the most illuminating pieces of the book is that everybody earns it. Right. And so what really got you there? To, to, to be able to come to the fact where like you earned it regardless of what your specific experience was. Yeah. So let me zoom out from that a little bit to give folks even more context, right? Who haven't read the book, which is that, um, you know, I come back from Afghanistan in early 2007 and I'm convinced that, look, all I did was go to meetings. I was an intelligence officer, uh, who, you know, who took meetings with people who uh, we suspected of being bad guys, pretending to be good guys. And I thought, that's not war. I just went to meetings. Now, cut to 11 years later, somebody at the VA sits me down and says, okay, let me get this straight. You were in the most dangerous place on the planet. You uh, were practically by yourself, just you and a translator. You were vulnerable as all, as all heck for hours at a time. And you were in meetings with people who might want to kill you. You couldn't know until you went into the meetings. And nobody knew where you were, so nobody was coming to save you. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, that's combat. And it's really traumatic. Well, in the intervening period, that 11 years, I was telling myself, well, look, it can't be related to that because, you know, I had seen Black Hawk Down growing up. You know, I had seen what combat was supposed to be. And the, and the United States Army had told me, just like they tell every other member of the military over and over again, what you're doing is no big deal, no matter what you're doing, right? And I didn't understand that. Uh, and that's okay, like that they did that because that's how they got me to go do my job. And that's how they get any of us to go do our job. But at the end of it, they don't say, actually, that was a big deal. So then in that 11 years, when I'm experiencing, you know, violent night terrors, and sleep paralysis, and hypervigilance, believing that I'm in danger all the time, that my family is in danger, that that becomes, you know, a simmering anger all the time, or you know, an inability to sit in a restaurant with my back to the door, uh, combined with, you know, eventually depression, self-loathing, a complete lack of self-compassion, uh, and then emotional numbness. And all of this then spirals, you know, in, in the last year or so of, of my dealing with it in an undiagnosed and untreated way into suicidal ideation. The whole time I'm dealing with that, I'm thinking, well, it's not PTSD because what I experienced, I didn't earn it. I, I didn't earn PTSD. And what happened was, is that I finally was getting so bad that I called the VA crisis line, the veterans crisis line. And I was just calling thinking, well, maybe they'll suggest something I can do for the way I am. But I still wasn't admitting to myself it was PTSD. And then the woman on the other end of the line, uh, the, the tone of her voice when she when I answered her question about whether I had had suicidal thoughts, which I had only answered honestly ever to my wife, you know, the way she spoke to me after that about my service and about what I needed to go do, I realized that she didn't sound any different. Like she didn't, I didn't sound any different to her than any other veteran she had talked to in that job. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm not different than any of these other uh, folks. And so then I went and I Googled PTSD, which I had done many times in my life, but I'd always done it to convince myself that it wasn't me. And I would read it in a way where I would try and like, like in law school, where I would try and distinguish it from, you know, like the fact pattern and say, oh, this is how it doesn't apply to me. But this was the first time I ever read it with an actual open mind. And it was like someone had written it about me. And that's when I knew uh, I can't mess around with this. I, I got hurt over there and it's been 11 years and it's getting worse. And I, I don't want to want to kill myself. I need to deal with this. And you talk not just about you as a victim of PTSD, but your wife as well, suffering from secondary PTSD. Maybe explain uh, that to our listeners who may not have heard of secondary PTSD. Yeah, we wanted to make sure that that was 
in the book as well because we didn't even know about it until I had been in therapy for a minute. Um, <clears throat> and that's why in the book, you know, every every chapter or so, Diana comes in with at least one passage in the first person and kind of bears witness to what I was going through at the time, but also talks about her own experience. Because uh, it turns out that if you uh, spend years living with someone who believes that uh, you and your family are in imminent danger all the time and tells you so and wakes up next to you in the middle of the night. Actually, you have to wake their body up. Diana used to joke that she was like my service animal because I would have this sleep paralysis from nightmares and she had to shake me awake. Um, and then I, you know, proceed to tell you about this terrible, you know, nightmare that I just had where I'm in Afghanistan and I'm being kidnapped. And then eventually, you know, it evolved into where we're here at home, but they're trying to kidnap her you know, it soaks into you. And eventually she ended up with a lot of the same symptoms as me, even though she didn't have the same underlying trauma and she needed to go get therapy as well. Jason, you talk a lot in the book about your journey and, and the first access to these mental health services you had were through the VA. Uh, how has this experience led you to recommend changes in the way our country cares for its veterans? I mean, mm -hmm. There's got there's got to be there's got to be a better way to do this, and I know good people are trying every day. But as somebody who is now a consumer of these services in a very acute way, uh, what, what do you think sure. about the way we provide services? Well, first, I'm curious, Rich, do you use the VA? Uh, I have not. Uh, avail I've, I've availed myself of the uh, mortgage. Uh, the VA home loan? And yeah. uh, the home loan, but, sure. uh, but, but not any of their services. No, common story. That was me up until uh, 2018. Same deal. Um, so, the, uh, the, so the first thing I want to say about the VA is that all of the care that I've received there has been excellent. And every clinician I've met, every person at the call center, like it is, and people like are surprised when I say this because of the reputation, uh, from a customer service standpoint, in terms of the actual people I interact with, it's maybe the best I've ever had. Now, the system is uh, is pretty inadequate, and the people you deal with know that, and they're constantly trying to navigate around it as well, right? So, for instance, when I first went there, uh, I was told that it was probably going to be a few months before I could get into the system enrolled and access to it to weekly therapy. And that's why, uh, you know, I went and, and I detail this in the book. That's why I went to Veterans Community Project, which is where I'm now the president of National Expansion. But at the time, I just went there to get help with expediting my paperwork. And they they did it very well. They got me, uh, you know, into weekly therapy at the VA within like a week. Um, but I needed I needed their help. And, and I think that's a, a good example of like where where the system uh, has a real shortcoming. I mean, here I was. I was a person who you would think should have been able to streamline that, right? Like I have a Georgetown law degree, a phone full of influential contacts and um, high level government experience. And, you know, I was at a loss for what to do. Now, of course, I wasn't in the greatest emotional state, but neither are a lot of people when they really need the VA. And so there's a few things that need to change. But I guess the biggest thing I've learned, and I've mostly learned this not as a patient, but as somebody at Veterans Community Project doing the work that I do now, and that is that we have to massively widen the site aperture of who the VA serves. Because right now, the way it works is the system is set up to where, in many cases, you sort of have to prove that you have earned your benefits at the VA. Now, if you served 20 years or if you were you know, medically retired, which is to say wounded or hurt in a way where they, they give you a retirement as if you did 20 years. Well, it's probably pretty smooth to get into the VA. But if you're anybody else, and that's the vast majority of people who served in the military, it's almost as if they're putting the burden on you to prove that you have uh, earned these benefits. And that's especially problematic when you consider that even after that, it still leaves out about 30% of people who have served in the military. So for instance, if you uh, were a New York National Guardsman and you were mobilized after January 6th and you spent five months at the Capitol, but you never deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and then you get out of the guard, the federal government does not consider you a veteran. You don't have access to the VA. And that doesn't make any sense. And those sort of rules that have all these like little nooks and crannies in the system as to who gets benefits and who doesn't and how many benefits they get, it turns people off from trying. And that's why at Veterans Community Project, 
you know, we keep a really simple rule, which is if you served even one day in the military, you get 100% of our services because it encourages people to buy in and to lean all the way into their treatment, whatever it is. And is that like a money question, a Congress question, a bureaucracy question, and all of the above? Like, we, this is something that should be totally bipartisan and like should be, if anything is a slam dunk in Washington anymore, this should be yeah. it, right? It's all of the above, um, but it's mostly Congress because there's this sense that, you know, people are scared to death, uh, it seems, of what if somebody gets some services that they don't deserve and and also i think it's colored by the military culture a little bit like think about you know how the military works it's like everything is about rank everything is about uh you know uh, awards and what you qualify for there's there's a very specific system in each case of like oh well you know does that rate this award at the end of your deployment or does it does it rate this award at the end of your deployment have you got enough time and grade to move to the next rank and do you have the right bullets on your officer evaluation report or your ncoer to move to the next one so all of that colors it to where there's this um sort of proclivity toward uh excluding people when in doubt like if it's a tie the tie goes to excluding someone when in reality it ought to be hey let's open the doors wide because uh these are people who one way or another they've served their country and they've earned this maybe talk a little bit about the work uh, that you're doing as president of national expansion at veterans community project uh, what else do you guys do at, at veterans community project yeah, I appreciate the question. Um, so Veterans Community Project does two things primarily. Um, the first is uh, out, we operate outreach centers, which are basically walk-in clinics that uh, dip into the reservoir of goodwill that exists in society toward veterans to get all sorts of partnerships and people to, to do what they do, but to do it for veterans and to do it at no cost, right? So whether they're mental health providers or dentists, or they cut hair or they fix cars, or they even veterinarians, because a lot of uh, a lot of veterans have, have animals uh, and they're expensive, particularly, you know, veterans who maybe are living in poverty, um, everything. They, they can come to Veterans Community Project and do that through our walk-in centers. But we also do things like emergency assistance grants to make sure people can stay housed, uh, stuff like that. And then that's like what we're lesser known for, but a really important part of what we do. What we're much better known for is the residential side of our services, which is we build villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management services to serve as uh, transitional housing for homeless veterans, which is to say, you know, we raise villages for anybody who has raised a hand. And what these villages do is they, they replicate in a lot of ways, what base housing felt like so that we put people right back in where the, the position where they were most recently stable and successful. And then we restart the military to civilian transition back at day one, no matter how long you've been homeless. So over the course of your time with us, you transition from getting all of your services in one place, our village, just the way you did when you were on active duty, to eventually, by the time you're ready to leave, getting your services, going to your job, doing everything around the community so that you're completely ready to be uh, permanently housed. And do you have a success rate at this point you're pointing to? I mean, good case studies. Mm -hmm. and Yeah, uh, we have an 85% uh, success rate of getting people from homelessness to being successfully housed and staying there, which is about twice uh, what is considered really, really good for uh, the world of transitional housing out of homelessness. Reportedly, you were in the running for secretary of VA uh, under this president uh, during the transition. Uh, I don't know if you, they interviewed you, went through the process. Did you stay involved? Do you stay connected to the secretary today? Uh, thanks for not making me answer the first part of that question so that I'm, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be like rude. Uh, so thank you. Um, yeah, um, I've had some good conversations with Secretary McDonough. Um, so uh, and and. To be clear, like I, I do want to answer that in, in this way, which is to say, as I said in the book, you know, during transition time, the Biden Harris campaign contacted me to to see if I was interested in being considered, and and I and I for I don't name what it was or anything like that, but but I just you know my wife and I talked about it and decided no, we like our life as it is, and maybe one day that's something I want to do, but uh, it did I did really appreciate that Secretary McDonough once they had a, a nominee and everything before he was Secretary he contacted me we had a great conversation and I tried to you know, uh, offer him some of the stuff I've learned at, at Veterans Community Project over the last few years. And, uh, and that continues to be an open line of communication. I know that they're working hard on these issues. 
And I will tell you, having worked for Dennis McDonough when he was a White House, when he was a Deputy National Security Advisor, I have not met a more dedicated public servant who pushes his people every single day with the end user consumer in mind than him. Um, so yeah. glad that he's glad that he's listening and glad that you guys are continuing to talk on this because, you know, it's, it's righteous work. Yeah. I mean, look, here's what I'll say for, for Dennis, which is I don't think Dennis was sitting around like in late November of last year going like, you know what I really want to be is the VA secretary <laughs> or even what I want to do is go back into the, into government. I, but you know, I think what happened was, is that they called him and said, we'd like you to do this. And he said, okay, I'll serve. And, uh, and I, I think that speaks well of him. Quick question on Afghanistan before, before we leave this and move on to other topics. Uh, obviously, I know you've talked about this publicly. You're working on, on this issue still today. You're an Afghan veteran, um, victim of PTSD from that war, watching the photos, watching the videos of what took place last August during the withdrawal, the ongoing saga of people who can't get out, et cetera. How does that impact you personally, and, and what are you doing today? Maybe talk a little bit about your activity still. Sure. Uh, before I do that, Rich, tell me about your time there. You, so you served there? Uh, I was uh, at Bagram with uh, VAQ-209, a Reserve Navy uh, squadron uh, of prowlers uh, okay. doing electronic attack uh, sorties uh, out of Bagram throughout the country. Okay. What years were you there? 2011. Okay. 2011. All right. Cool. Um, so, yeah, my experience... Um, and and then just just an interesting Mayor Pete when I when I got back and I moved my unit reserve unit from D.C. to uh, Chicago Mayor Pete uh, I was introduced to uh, at Fort Sheridan Illinois in my Navy Reserve unit so they were like <laughs> oh funny. you're you're a Republican staffer for the governor here like oh this is the mayor of South Bay you guys should know each other yeah <laughs> yeah that's funny that's cool um, yeah. yeah so um, I, I'm now I'm forgetting the question sorry was it. To talk Afghanistan, about it. It was, it Afghanistan. Was, what happened this, last year? Your, oh, your, your uh, last impact year stuff. and yeah. yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, uh, and maybe you ha maybe you share some of these feelings that you know in August when the withdrawal began, or I guess it began a little before that. Um, I wasn't surprised intellectually uh, at what was happening um, because I had I had dealt a lot with the Afghan government that had been a big part of my job, but it still affected me greatly. And, and it surprised me how much it affected me to see the Taliban take back over. So I found all of that really triggering and it really bothered me to see it um, portrayed in, in the media in a way that just simplified it. And they tried to, it felt like people were so desperate to try to understand what had happened that they were gonna explain it through the lens of one of two things. Either this is another Vietnam or uh, this and Iraq are like one war, right? And I, that bothered me. And it turned out, I learned that it bothered a lot of other Afghan vets who felt like, you know, actually we, we did a lot of things there that um, we're proud of. Um, yeah, clearly the, the idea of like building Afghanistan into something that resembles us in any way, that mission failed long before we decided to leave and, and, and we left you know, we stayed too long in that mission, but people forget things like ISIS began to surge there, uh, you know, about eight or 10 years ago. And that that was, a, that was something that sort of forced a bit of a, um, of a change in the mission set, um, and, and things like that. But so that bothered me. And I, I tried to be helpful to that at the advice of my therapist, actually, by going on TV and talking about that. And that did make me feel valuable. And, it, and I heard from a lot of other Afghan vets who appreciated it. Now, I wasn't out there saying, hey, no, this war was a good war. And we want no, I was just saying, look, it's not it's not Vietnam. It's not Iraq. It's Afghanistan. It's its own separate thing. And we should digest it as its own separate thing. But then what happened next for me was uh, that you know, in talking with my translator, Salam, who thankfully is in the United States, I learned that uh, his family, um, of which there were people who had also served the United States in Afghanistan, were still there and were stuck and couldn't get out. And on top of that, one of my battle buddies from over there, uh, three guys who he was with when we were there, who I knew, they and their families were stuck and couldn't get out. And so we, you know, like a lot of vets started trying to get our people into the airport. And we did that for a couple of weeks. I, you know, was here in my upstairs office where I am now sleeping on the floor and living on, on cobble time. 
And we were unsuccessful in getting our people into the airport. And then we made the judgment that at the time seemed like a really insane one and still kind of does to tell them, hey, we're still going to get you out, even though there was no American presence there at all. And we ended up over the course of weeks getting uh, those people to Masri Sharif uh, to, um, you know, be in hiding from the Taliban who were looking for them and eventually ended up with about 75 families that we were responsible for, thanks to other vets coming our way and uh, raised a bunch of money and chartered an air uh, an airliner to fly in to Masri Sharif and had to hide our people in a wedding hall for a few days and then sneak them into the airport past the Taliban, basically, um, or at least sneak them around Masri Sharif past the Taliban and then into the airport and uh, eventually got them out. And then we we ended up turning that into something called Afghan Rescue Project. And to the, to, to date, we've now gotten about 1,800 Afghan allies out of the country. Wow. Um, wow. And Thank that's you. all great. But yeah, like a couple months ago, um, my wife had to convince me that hey, yeah, initially it was triggering, but it eventually became its own trauma. Uh, you know, like having these folks send you all of their vital documents and then having you responsible for them living in them living in your phone or your computer because they had to destroy them or otherwise if they were found of them, they'd be killed or just the photos of the people who didn't make it or who were in hiding and all of that stress. Um, a buddy of mine who I was doing this with said that this experience uh, is the thing that that convinced him that drone operators actually can get PTSD from their work because you can get it remotely. So uh, the difference now is like, I know what to do about that. I've gone back to my therapist, Nick, at the VA. And, uh, you know, we've been doing weekly sessions focused on this experience for the last few weeks. And it's helped a lot. It's like, it's helped a ton. I wish, I wouldn't say I wish because I don't want to like regret things the way they uh, turned out. But uh, I recognize that it would have been better if I had just done this right after my deployment, instead of allowing that injury to get worse for 10 or 11 years. So Jason, shifting gears for a second, take us back to growing up in Kansas and meeting your wife. How did you meet her and how did you choose this life of public service? Sure. Um, so I grew up in a family, like my kids are sixth generation Kansas Cityans, right? So we, we've been here a long time. Um, and I grew up in a really public service oriented family in the sense that my parents were juvenile probation officers. My dad was a, a part-time cop as well. And they took in, you know, kids, my friends whose families were struggling and they became what we call my unofficial foster brothers. So my younger brother and I had these other guys who lived in the house who were our friends. And, and so the message to us growing up was like, if you have the ability to help somebody, you should, because we've been fortunate. And so then, uh, you know, my wife and I, we, we met in high school. Um, and so we were uh, long distance during college. Uh, and I remember I was always talking to Diana about, you know, I didn't feel like I'd ever been tested. You know, are you really a man if you've never been tested? I felt like, you know, baseball games and debate tournaments was as hard as it had ever gotten for me. And then uh, I was going to school in DC and 9-11 happened. And, you know, like a lot of people, my grandfather and my great grandfather and my great uncle, they had all served in World War II, World War One, but we weren't like a military family, but it always made sense to me that there was a war. They were in their early 20s, so they signed up, went, served in the military, fought in the war, and then went back to their lives. Like, that just made sense to me, that that's what you do. So when 9-11 happened, I knew that that's what I was going to do. And uh, and so I signed up, became an, uh, an Army Intelligence Officer, um, and then uh, volunteered to deploy. And... Uh, you know, it was interesting because I had this started when I was in American University. I did ROTC while I was at Georgetown Law School um, and not even to become like an army lawyer, but to become an army intelligence officer. And a lot of people were just like, well, what are you doing? Like you have an education. Why would you do this? You don't have to. And I remember always just being frankly offended by that because I was like, that is just saying that because I was born into some good fortune that therefore I don't owe the country the same thing as anybody else, I actually felt like I owed the country more because I was born into this uh, better situation. And so what I didn't expect uh, was that I loved it. Like I loved the army and I was pretty decent at it. And, uh, and that was the part I didn't expect that I would enjoy it so much. And maybe talk about how that all led you into politics and your career in public service. Uh, and a little bit of a related question, your Jewish upbringing. Um, how has that influenced you throughout your path so far? Yeah, there's not a lot of us uh, 
Jewish Afghanistan vets running around, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's not super common, right? Um, I was the Jewish lay leader on Bagram during the deployment. I have a little oh, really? plaque from First Cav. It's my only real army relationship. Is my little First Cav plaque thanking me for my for my service as Jewish lay leader at the uh, at the chapel. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess the, the Jewish part of it is like, I grew up, um, as a reformed Jew in Kansas city, which is to say that most, most every Jew that I met before I went off to college on the East coast, I was related to, um, and you know, with the exception of my wife who came here as a refugee from, you know, Soviet Ukraine in 1989, right? But even that, like her family came here through the refugee resettlement agency here, Jewish Family Services, that my grandfather had been president of and had had emphasized the importance of them helping refugees, which is a big part of why her family even got here. Like that's that's you know the when you're fifth generation Jewish in a place west of the Mississippi, it's a small community <laughs> for you, right? Um, and so that is to say, like I was the kind of Jewish kid who didn't have a bar mitzvah went to Catholic school because that's where his foster unofficial foster brothers were going to go and pretty much went to temple for weddings and funerals. Um, and then connected a little more to my Jewish identity when I, when I went to the East coast and when I got a little older. Um, but the part of it that my family definitely did keep and did teach us was, you know, the, the heal the world, repair the world, tikkun olam part of it. That was whether they ever said it or not, that, that clearly was an ethic that ran through our family. And so when, you know, even before I deployed, uh, I was interested in running for office. I just didn't really know what that meant. I had like had an idea of, uh, I had my eye on like a state legislative spot before I deployed. But I didn't, I think I saw politics the way a political science major saw politics at the time, which was, you know, it was competition. I knew what I believed in, but mostly I wanted to beat the other team, right? Because that's what, that's what politics was the way I had studied it. And the, what changed things for me and my perspective of public service was being in Afghanistan, you know, spending a lot of time in vehicles that were not armored you know, going on missions uh, over the road as opposed to uh, with helicopters and doing all of that and having it constantly explained to me that, well, a lot of those resources that we need in order to do this the way we should do it, those are in Iraq. And this was 06, 07. And I had a, a very strong belief that that had been a political choice, not a, not a necessary choice to go to Iraq. And I had friends who were there who were getting hurt. And that was the first time in my life that I'd ever been on the receiving end of a politically driven decision that negatively affected my life. You know, I, my family had done well. There was no politician taking food off our, our table uh, by a choice that they made. But, but now I did understand what that felt like. And so when I came home and I looked at, at politically driven decisions, um, whether they were about, you know, military or foreign policy or not, they could be about Medicaid in my state. I saw this this through line, this thread that ran through all of it. And I also, unbeknownst to myself, came home with a PTSD that made me really angry about that kind of stuff. And not that you shouldn't be angry about that kind of stuff, but it, it made me an extra level of angry about that. And what I say about it in the book is that when I got to the state legislature uh, for myself and for one of my closest friends, Stephen Weber, who we got there at the same time, he's a Marine combat vet from Iraq, we arrived feeling like every Republican we met was Donald Rumsfeld until proven otherwise. And, and that affected the way I dealt with my colleagues. So, so Jason, I want to come back and ask you about Diana's upbringing and, and, uh, and, and being from Ukraine and, and all that, but you just touched on something that is really personal to me. You know, Rich and I, I've worked really hard to make this podcast one that fosters civilized dialogue in an uncivilized time. Are we losing the ability to do that as a, as a country? And what do you think we should be doing uh, to get that back? Well, yeah, we're definitely losing it. And But I think that the part that we're – what's causing it that we don't recognize is that we are, we are losing any sense of shared American identity. And without a sense of shared American identity, there's not a lot of reason to be civil to each other, right? Um, and when I say that, what I mean is, is that like 
when you ask somebody, what does it mean to be an American? Like, what really distinguishes somebody as an American? You know, you can have like a politician answer to that. Well, it's our freedoms. It's our ability to, okay, maybe, but there's other countries who have that, right? And I, I actually think that unfortunately right now, like what, what brings us together? Like what's our shared experience? It's stuff like one in three Americans watch the Super Bowl or, you know, everybody has one, a view one way or the other on Taylor Swift and they all know who The Rock is. Like that's not the kind of stuff you can build a country around. And why are we like that right now? Well, there's a few reasons. I mean, you can look at things like gerrymandering. You can look at things like all this stuff that, that drives people apart. But I look at those things as reflections of where our culture has gone. And I think that we've gotten to where we are as a result of having no shared experience. I mean, look, this is the longest we have ever gone as a nation without some form of mandatory service. And I'm not saying it has to be military, but when when people don't have anything invested in their country, and more importantly, when they don't have a part of their youth that requires them to be around people who are not like them, well, they can go their entire lives, and most, most choose to do this, uh, they can go their entire lives only being around people like them. And that makes anybody who's not like you totally foreign. So if, you know, look, take my experience, for example, right? Like, uh, I, I was motivated to go into politics, whether I had served in the military or not. That was sort of what I was into, right? Well, I think I would have been a very different person in the political sphere if I hadn't, because, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in a well-off situation in the suburbs of Kansas City. Most of the people I knew were white, and they were well off. I happened to come from a pretty liberal family. But other than that, like, I didn't really know anybody who wasn't like me. But being in the service, you know, I met a ton of people who weren't like me. And, and I lived with those people. And I, you know, and I spent time with those people. And so as a result, whether you're talking about somebody who's liberal or conservative, who's black or white, whatever, I know people like that. So when when there's an issue that's going to negatively affect a certain type of people, I feel that I have a connection to those folks, um, and that's a lot that's a lot different than than feeling like you know, uh, well, yeah, that'll suppress some people's vote, but like it's really easy to buy into the idea that oh, it's their own fault. Like if you can't relate to their experience at all, so I I think that ultimately what we're going to need is is some sort of system that. Uh, frankly, I think compels people to go be around people who are not like them and to feel a, a kinship with them. But short of that, I am at least very optimistic that Generation Z, the more people I talk to in, in Gen Z, the more people I, I feel like understand this inadequacy in our culture and are really bothered by it uh, and want to do something about it regardless. Very famous Missouri politician of old uh, had a national service platform when he ran for president, uh, and Dick Gephardt. Um, yep. Something that really hasn't and, and now has a, 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 a well. Well, and now he has a an institute at uh, I think at Wash U that is all about um, uh, civil service and public service and 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 bringing people together. Uh, listen, I I agree with you. I think it's a profound statement. It's not one we talk about enough, but. You know, I read your bio, I read interviews you give where you say, like, you know, your politics are Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, if you were just, you know, some left wing politician, you know, on the show, like, I would feel personally, emotionally different right now. It's not a good right. thing that I say that, but it's true. The fact that you served, you're a veteran, and, and you, you and I probably can share stories and places in common and things in common, maybe even people in common if, if we played it like Jewish geography, basically. Mm -hmm. is it nobody else is going to understand that unless you served nobody gets it that that's right and it doesn't have to be the military right it's just it, it just something that vests you in the country and connects you uh to the people around you because like it used to be the case that that like most of the people doing the hiring and most of the people uh you know who were you know in the interviews they were you know, talking at least about what they did during the war, right? Like, like it, whether you were a man or a woman, like maybe you served, maybe you didn't, but like everybody did something during that period and it was defining. And, and so, you know, and in Israel, for instance, um, you know, because 
men and women both serve, one of the first questions in every job interview is what unit were you in? Just something that binds people together, right? So again, it doesn't have to be military. It could just be, yeah, you know, I spent two years uh, working at a, um, at a food kitchen, uh, you know, on the other side of town. Uh, and, and so as a result, like, you know, people on the other side of town, the, the other side of town, that the part of town that people where you're from don't usually go to and try to avoid, like you would have friendships there. And that would, that would make you care what happens in that part of the community and whether dollars get spent there. Right. You might even like have your kids on the same little league team as them because you have a friendship there. And so I think it would make a huge difference, particularly given that we're not in a time where you go to work and talk to your friends about what was on TV last night. And there's a one in three chance you watch the same thing because there are only three channels. Everything is pushing us apart and we have to make a conscious effort to bring ourselves back together. All right, Jason, we're gonna, I got one more substantive question for you and then we're going to go to the lightning round okay. where we uh, throw a few, cur few curveballs at you. So you talked uh, a little bit ago about how your wife's family is from Soviet Ukraine. Uh, they came as refugees. I think they're from Odessa, right? right. If I'm not mistaken. Yep. How are how are how are she and her family handling? You know all that's going on with the the Russian aggression in Ukraine, uh, and has that been a triggering experience? It's been really difficult for my in laws in particular. Diana was um, seven years old when they left the country. Eight years old when they got here, um, and so you know, and she she doesn't have a lot of memory of the period before that. So like she, to her, she's like, I'm, I'm from Kansas city. Right. Um, right. now, uh, my in-laws on the other hand, it's interesting because for many years, um, you know, I've, Diana and I have been together, um, since we were 17. Right. So, uh, 23 years now. And, um, uh, it's, I've always like, like I took Russian in college and stuff because I wanted to, you know, connect with that culture, but also because I wanted to know when my like cousins-in-law were making fun of me and stuff like that. Because, uh, <laughs> because they left before it was Ukrainian. It was still, they had, you, you, just, you had to speak Russian in Soviet Ukraine. And so uh, I always had lots of questions about it and I really wanted to go there and everything. And their attitude was always, um, look, that place didn't want us. Like, we're not interested in that. Like, like they would tell me about what it was like growing up, but like they didn't have, they didn't miss the place. Right. And they didn't want to go there. Well, that's largely because they felt like as Jews, that place rejected us. Right. And they grew up under, you know, the yoke of, of anti-Semitism for sure. Um, what's interesting now is their perspective is they look at a country that is being defended by and really is defended by a person who is an out and out hero, who is a Jewish president of the country who was elected with over 70% of the vote. And, and I think it has, they, they have always referred to themselves, this whole community here in Kansas city, even though they, they left Ukraine, they left Soviet Ukraine. So they've always referred to themselves as the Russian community here in Kansas city. And I feel like there's a real connection right now for them with their sense of, of their Ukrainian heritage. And I know, and my wife, you know, she doesn't really care about labels and words that much. So she's not that into it. But like, for me, I tell her, I'm like, my kids are half Ukrainian. Like they're not, they're not half Russian. They're half Ukrainian. And, and so, um, it has been hard for my in-laws, especially like as Odessa has been brought into the fighting. Um, they don't really, they have like a few people they still know there, but it's more just, I mean, you know, even if you hadn't been to the no. place you were from in, in 30 years, like seeing it shelled would be a whole other thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I spent one Passover in in Odessa in college and for two weeks, and I'm even like, you know, looking at it being shelled and it's very jarring. Um, all right. So before we let you go, we have the lightning round where we want to just ask you a couple questions to get a little bit of a better sense of, uh, of who you are. Um, so, Rich, you want to lead off? Of course, of course. Our favorite on the show. Uh, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Hmm. Uh, and profanity is allowed here as long as it's in Yiddish. He Hebrew, Hebrew is is an option as well, uh, but uh, or Arabic or Arabic. We've 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 done that as well. It's true. Let's we haven't see. done Persian yet. We should do Persian at some point. Oh well, if we're going to include uh, Arabic, um, I gotta I gotta go with uh, Inshallah. Um, because man, you know, and for those who don't know, it, it basically means if God wills it and, 
over the last 10 months uh, of counseling people and, and, hand, and literally handling people as they've been trying to evacuate Afghanistan and, uh, and you know, trying to help them stay safe, I have either said on the phone or texted the word inshallah so many times. Um, and, and it is, uh, you know, I, I think that culturally they're really onto something. The idea that when something is out of your control, you can just sort of sit back and say, well, we'll see what, what God's will is. The closest for me is when Chabad people always, Chabad rabbis text you BH, you know, Baruch Hashem. Everything's Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem so sure. you know. But, uh, but I, I say inshallah right. back to them, so, so it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> favorite, favorite Jewish food? Favorite Jewish food. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, I think is, if we're counting, yeah, lox. Lox and, uh, you know, like bagels and stuff. I mean, if I'm in New York, like it's the second thing I get after pizza. Um, which Do you do capers, capers or no I will capers? allow capers. Like if there's capers there and they're already on there, like I'll eat it, it's no problem. But like it, I'm not going to reach for the capers. Oh, that's okay. interesting. I, yeah. I reach for the capers, like in like a buffet situation, perhaps. Yeah, I will if someone's watching, and it seems like you know, like if they if they prepared the smorgasbord, right, right. You know, if they put out the capers, you should. Yeah, exactly. All right, all right. More detailed uh, and real fi- final type food question: best kosher food you've had within a certain mileage proximity of Kansas City. Uh, Is there any? Yeah, I've I mean, never. There's got to be. Some. I've probably a Jewish day had, school in, in in Kansas City on the Kansas side. Yeah, there is. Um, you, you're not such a purveyor of it. No, I mean, I'm sure I've know. had it. I just don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I. You know, I'll give you one in St. Louis. Um, That's fine. Yeah, yeah. A, you know, that right. is a certain mileage proximity from Kansas City. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a place in St. Louis. Uh, there's a deli called Pratzels. Um, which, and I'm sure that there is something here. I just haven't frequented it. And, but in, in St. Louis, there's a place that, uh, it used to be like around the corner from, um, one of my campaign offices in St. Louis. And so I would go to Protzels all the time and, uh, and it was just crazy good. Excellent. Jason Kander, veteran activist. Uh, we're excited to see what's next and we're excited to read the book when it comes out this week. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. I appreciate it very much. Wow, Rich. You know, it's pretty amazing to hear somebody and read somebody be that honest about such a raw uh, topic. And, and I would just say as a parenthetical, Jason Kander is also the person with what I think is the greatest political ad of all time. Uh, when he was running against Roy Blunt in Missouri, and one of the central issues was gun control and Second Amendment rights, Jason Kander uh, put his rifle together blindfolded while taking a shot at Roy Blunt. Um, ultimately, was unsuccessful in that race, but as a pure uh, act of political ad making, it was phenomenal. Still lost. Still, still lost. lost. Still yes, lost. Yes, it is. Uh, I, I recall the ad. I recall the ad well. Uh, listen, I, I liked him a lot as far as uh, interview subject. Um, he's done a lot of interesting things. He's, he's come a long way. He's sharing experiences I think are very, very difficult to share publicly. I give him a lot of credit for that. And very personable, just, you know, sort of asking me questions as we went along. You know, tell me about your experience. Um, something you don't hear from a lot of people we interview. So uh, great guests, a great show, and plenty left in us for the future. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.